What a privilege today to join together in the worship of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Psalm chapter 54. Psalm 54 will be our text this morning. Seven verses that David writes when he is in distress and finds his refuge and confidence in Jesus Christ, his Lord. The title of this morning's message is In Response to Backstabbing. A response to backstabbing. David has been betrayed by his own countrymen in the text. We find that in the title today. But instead of lashing out in vengeance just to protect himself with the means that he has at his fleshly disposal, he turns to his Lord in prayer. More than that, he turns to his Lord in worship song. And he writes these words that we have in Psalm 54 today. They're as relevant right now as they were when he was being chased by Saul and his minions. So stand today this morning, if you would, and if you're able, with your Bible open, and let us read these verses together. This is Psalm 54. This is the immutable Word of God that we have before us today. And so the psalm is titled, To the Choir Master, with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? Verse 1, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life, they do not set God before themselves. Verse 4, Selah, verse 4, Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Last month when we were studying Psalm 53, I identified for you a theme that we find in several Psalms, chapters 52 through 60. And in keeping with those themes, or the themes that are threaded through these Psalms, Psalm 54 provides a song of worship in the presence of our enemies. This is a great soundtrack for Psalm 23 where it says, He spreads a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I have fellowship with my God, even though I'm surrounded by the evil one. I have a safe haven and refuge in my Lord and my Savior, even though the enemy is knocking at the door of my soul, if he could, and the door of my life uh, while I'm being chased in this fugitive race, Saul, the ungodly dictator against David, the anointed one, yet not, but not yet in his place as king. Psalm 54, again, it provides a song of worship in the presence of our enemies. Now, if you were to turn, you could do this on your own time later, to 2 Samuel 22, 35. 2 Samuel 22, 35, or Psalm 18, 34, or perhaps Psalm 144, 1 through the end of the chapter, you would find what Joel read to us this morning in our call to worship text, that, the, that David in other places, the Word of God establishes in other places, that the godly warrior prototype is identified in these verses in terms of hands trained for war and fingers for battle. 
You recall passages in the scriptures, it is God who trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. He gives me a shield of victory. My enemies fall at my feet. David was a warrior. He was equipped by God's power to establish and to outfit him with the ability to vanquish the enemies of God as they were found around him in the pagan nations. Yet David's arms and fingers that could deftly wield the sword and could bend the strong bow and could launch an accurate arrow into the heart of the enemy did not, be, did not set themselves upon those implements of war by first priority. Instead, Psalm 54 expounds the conditioning and disciplined spiritual mentality of the warring ambassador. By example, in this warrior's lament that we find in the first person, David's hands are first trained, the godly warrior's hands are first trained or are trained for spiritual war and are always directed firstly heavenward. They're directed heavenward in raised surrender, lament, petition, and praise. And this is priority before they reach down for the sword. So again, in summary, the hands that are trained for battle, the fingers that can bend a bow of bronze, we have a picture poetically of them raised to the Lord first in petition and in lament, O God, save me. Only then do they drop to the sword to lift it and to rush at the foe. This principle of war is repeatedly modeled by David in his Psalms and in his administration as the anointed magistrate for God's people. And it was also modeled by the godly kings and warriors throughout the scriptures. Think of Moses. He seeks the face of God first when he has a crisis with God's people. And then he addresses it tangibly. Think of Joshua before invading a city, before instructions were given to, to triumph over Jericho, Joshua first had to hear in the presence of God from the angel of the Lord what that battle plan would be. And in each successful campaign, all of God's mighty generals did the same. Hands were lifted heavenward first to the sword secondly. The historical context of this psalm is illustrative. It gives us the context of inspiration, and we see this in the title. Ziph was a city in the mountains of Judah about five miles southeast of Hebron, one of David's many hideouts during his fugitive years where Saul's jealous, obsessive oppression was the thorn in his flesh. David would seek refuge with people who would provide him safe haven would recognize that he was God's anointed one and would hide him from the warring authorities and Saul in his blind and irrational rage. But they didn't always do this. There were those who would align themselves selfishly with the favor of Saul, even though he was obviously ungodly, and they would sell David out. Twice this happened with the Ziphites, the people of Ziph. And we find this in the context. We'll touch on it later in our message. We'll seek to highlight the examples uh, upon which this psalm drew inspiration. Psalm 54, in light of these events contextually, and then bringing it into our context today, provides pressing and numerous applications. The applications of this psalm, this psalm of lament and this psalm of petition, are pressing and numerous. We will highlight a few of relevant ways this morning this psalm could apply to our very situation. Spurgeon reminds us of the breadth of this psalm when he comments on just the first phrase, for example, 
Uh, chapter 54, and again, verse 1, O God, save me by your name. Spurgeon remarks that this phrase could be uttered by a believer in numerous stages in his spiritual life. The explanation, exclamation, that is, of the newly hardened, uh, pardoned, excuse me, penitent. So someone who has just repented of his sin, who has just come to a knowledge of the truth, who has just surrendered himself unto Christ, repented of his sin, embraced Christ as his Savior, could rightly exclaim, O God, save me by your name. Yet this cry is also fitted for the lips of the delivered saint. O God, save me by your name. May I continue to find refuge in your great name. Save me not just from my sin, but from the devourer who would seek to thwart your glory and accomplishments through me, who would seek to come in between the plans that you have laid out before me and the footsteps which were uh, laid out for me to walk in. O God, deliver me. Thirdly, this phrase could fit well on the lips of the ripened Christian, the one who has had a long track record of faithfulness in the Christian walk, yet is now knocking on the doorstep of eternity, and in this moment of weakness may need to cry out to the Lord in his last dying breath, O Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And as his body grows frail, his spirit remains strong, and he cries out, O God, save me by your name. And finally, these words, O God, save me by your name, could well be suited for the shout of the glorified believer who celebrates the salvation of God as a theme forever before the throne where he casts his crown before the lamb that was slain and declares worthy unto the only way, truth, and life that has saved my soul. These are just some examples of how fitting Psalm 54 is in the worship of the believer. Let me give you a heading this morning for three categories. In this psalm, the heading is a self-defense strategy against betrayal. How do we defend ourselves against betrayal, being betrayed, uh, being uh, sold out by those we thought were friends when those close to us turn against us perhaps? Or how do we defend ourselves and our spirit against being destroyed or discouraged or depressed by the reality that those kinds of things happen in the course of our Christian life? How do we defend ourselves against the enemy who may be a brother, a sister, a close family member, someone you thought was a believer in Christ, who, had not, who has now shown himself to be an enemy of both you and the Lord? Three things this morning in response to this uh, or under this heading, a self-defense strategy. First, we have a hearing. David has a hearing before the Lord. He seeks to air his case, to bring his case before the ultimate judge. Secondly, there's a declaration. There's a confident statement of truth that David gives in verses 4 and 5. And then thirdly, he closes in this song of worship with a vow and victory. A vow and an expectation of victory. So three categories, hearing, declaration, vow, and victory. First of all, this morning, verses 1 through 3, David, in the legal language, that is... Um, consistent with other covenant contexts in the Old Testament Scripture, brings his case before the Lord by saying in verse 1, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. That term vindicate is legal language. Rule rightly, adjudicate, judge my case. I bring this before you as the plaintiff, as it were, asking you to rule as I file my lawsuit 
before the authority. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give give ear to the words of my mouth. Verse 3, here's his case. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Say law. And that word say law would indicate a transition then in perhaps theme or at least the segment of the song. So verses 1 through 3 are a category unto themselves in the, and perhaps we can label hear, that we can label hearing or court case. First of all, under hearing, there's an imperium in view here. What is imperium? Well, it's a noun, Webster's tells us, referring to a, super, a supreme power, absolute dominion and control, the right to command and to employ the force of the state, in a word, sovereignty. What is a legitimate court, you might ask, where you would bring your case or your grievance against someone else? Well, to have any hope of solving that in a way in keeping with jurisprudence, that court must be an authority that has rights over, that has rule and jurisdiction over both parties represented. And in this case, David goes to the Lord Himself. He goes to God. He goes to the ultimate authority. He goes to the Creator of the universe who is responsible for every breath in the lungs of every man who has ever and will ever live. And He says, Save me, O God, by Your name. Hear my prayer. Give ears to the words of my mouth. God and His government, including the government of His Messiah, covers and encompasses all of the universe. Of the Messiah, it is said in Isaiah 9 that the government will be upon His shoulders. This is to say that Jesus Christ is commissioned by the Father as ultimate judge. He is the standard of righteousness and He has perfect wisdom to rule in every case, every dispute. He can weigh the balances of justice with perfect omniscient eyesight. He can go far infinitely beyond the approximation of the best wisdom applied in this life and rule omnisciently and perfectly in every case. And so to this imperium, David brings his lawsuit. The psalm opens with David knocking on the door of the universal courtroom of transcendent and divine justice. And he is beseeching the authority of God Almighty and this shapes the poem. In fact, this acknowledgement of God's authority resting in His name and in His might, that is, His works and His reputation that show His great name and attributes, these things, this authority that the uh, author gives as, his, as the warrant for His appeal or the grounds upon which His case will be decided, becomes the theme and shapes this poem. It's a thread that is woven through it and it is indeed an escalating theme. Notice the first words of Psalm 54, O God. That term is repeated three other times. So four times, God, and in the original language, Elohim, is the subject to which David lifts his appeal, brings his prayer and petition. Verse 1, O God, save me by your name. Verse 2, O God, hear my prayer. Verse 3, speaking of the ungodly. They do not set God, Elohim, before themselves. Verse 4, Behold, God, Elohim, is my helper. 
And then there's a shift. And in this case, it's Adonai, translated Lord. Again, verse 4, second half, the Lord, Adonai, is the upholder of my life. So David is listing or he's stating the name of God in this more general and generic term, Elohim, and then a little bit more specific, Adonai, but this idea of authority to whom David makes his appeal reaches a crescendo as we get to verse 6. He says, with a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name. And again, it's a reference to the imperium, to the ultimate authority, to the supreme power, to the absolute dominion and control. I will give thanks to your name. And here we have the covenant name of God, Yahweh. O Lord, for it is good. By the time this song reaches its conclusion, the power that is demonstrated in the references to God ought to send a shudder and will send a shudder to every sober individual who hears these words. Men do not fear the Lord, but that is not because He is not a reality to be feared, but because they are rebellious, blind, stupid, ignorant, sinful, dead, and wayward. David is not such a man. He has a heart that is tuned to the fear of the Lord. And in this case, it is resounding in his petition. And though David knows that he is surrounded by men who do not fear God, this does not mean God is not one to be feared. He is reminding himself that he serves on commission and orders of Elohim, Adonai, indeed Yahweh himself. This term Yahweh, I have some associations that we grab from the rest of Scripture compiled for us in the Hebrew-English lexicon, Brown, Driver, and Briggs. They say the following. What should we think of? What does the author mean to convey by way of connotation when he uses the covenant name for God in this crescendo as he closes his psalm with this exaltation of God's authority? Well, Yahweh is the self-existent one. Remember in Exodus, Yahweh, the covenant name revealed to Moses out of the burning bush. I learned recently the reason why this fire rested on the bush but did not consume it. It was a picture in that imagery, in that manifestation of God in symbolic form of God's covenant name, the self-existent one. He is a fire that needs no fuel. That bush was a flame, but it did not need the bush. There was a presence of God that was visibly evident to Moses to teach him something. I am the one who was and is and is to come. I am the one of whom all authority, all matter, all creation, all direction in history is derived and contingent. I am the self-existent authority, the sovereign, the ruler of this entire universe. So when I tell you to go to this little puny empire with an ant-sized pharaoh who's keeping my people in slavery, and you say, let my people go, and you wonder who says, know that it is Yahweh, the self-existent one. Pharaoh may not fear God, but what will happen? His river that fertilizes his land will turn to blood in an instant. Pharaoh may not fear the Lord, but what will happen to his crops? They'll be decimated in a single hailstorm and anyone standing outside of shelter will be struck dead in a moment as he rains his justice in the form of ice from the heavenlies. Pharaoh may not fear the Lord, but what will happen if he does not bow to his mighty word? 
His firstborn son will be dead and his lineage will be snuffed out in a moment when God dispatches his agent of death and says, today your life will be required of you. This is Yahweh, the self-existent, eternal, covenant-keeping, self-consistent, absolute, unchangeable. And listen to this. He is the one ever coming into manifestation as the God of redemption. What this means is from our perspective with the unfolding truth of Scripture, we see as each page of Revelation turns the ultimate forever established plan of God to redeem mankind. Not only is He a God to be feared, but He is a God who provides a way of salvation and reconciliation with that self-existent, eternal, covenant-keeping, absolute, under, unchangeable authority. He is the sovereign over all. When we step into a courtroom, I've often told you that the vestiges, the garments that are worn, used as an example in the past by illustration of the judge and the elevated position, the mahogany desk, the address of respect, your, your honor, all those things, and even the marble hallways and the echoing chamber, the aesthetics and the acoustics, all of this in the environment of courts of justice in our day is meant to convey an air of sovereignty. Well, these things can indeed be superficial if they're not grounded in substance, yet they do have an effect on us, do they not? Well, there is a powerful testimony in Scripture and an air of sovereignty that is absolutely deafening and will snuff out life in its very presence if it is not in good standing. And that is the heir of the power. That is the absolute honor and praise that our God deserves. It is His power, absolute dominion, control, and His unchangeable nature and character. His ultimate commitment to justice and righteousness and His great name that everyone must answer to. And the only ones who answer alive do so under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is the context of authority that this hearing appears in Psalm 54. Secondly, let's consider the tone that David uses as he makes his request known. Perhaps best described by the biblical term lament. What is a lament? A poem, a song, a prayer of mourning of anguish, of honestly telling the Lord and crying out that I am at the end of my rope, at the end of my wits. Listen to Psalm 54, verse 2. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. The character of this kind of prayer is repeated over and again in this section. Notice the next psalm, Psalm 55, verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. There's this imagery that might come into your mind as you read that, of one begging on his knees, grabbing the ankles of the only one with the power to save, shaken at the weight of the difficulty and the anguish that they are enduring. 55.2, attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint. I moan. And that's that sense of guttural cry, of reaching to the depths of the inmost being, to the intrinsic core, to the very bones for cries of anguish 
screaming out, as it were, because of the unbearable nature of the oppression all around. Verse 3, because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. The tone of David's address, his appeal, his lawsuit, is in the framework of a lament. It is in mournful tones. It is a crying out in grievous sadness, anguish, and distress. And herein lies a principle, brothers and sisters, and an application of Psalm 54 for us. The humble petition, the anguish and cry, the lament of the broken soul necessarily precedes and conditions defiant resolve. That is, before we fight, we must cry out for help. Paul said in 2 Corinthians that he was in anguish even unto life in itself, but he identified a purpose in this affliction. He said, it was to teach me that my dependence is on God and not me. Later in the same book, he says that the affliction that we go through in this life works in us the weight of glory. That is, the things that we suffer move us to cry out and propel us toward victory. But without embracing God's purposes in the sorrow, there is really no groundwork for a firm resolve. A humble petition necessarily precedes and conditions a defiant resolve that is defiant against the enemy. What if you resolve yourself to go to war, to defend yourself, to take vengeance on your betrayer, to set things right, to go out and to say, I am going to do something about this, but you do not humble yourself in prayer. Notice the attitude that you are acting on. It is an, it is an attitude that places not firstly the glory of God, but instead the preservation of self. Our goal in fighting for the kingdom of God should never be, first of all, to fight on our behalf or to make our a plight to address our plight directly. But instead, our goal should be the glory of God. Perhaps the Lord is bringing against us some kind of conviction, some kind of chastisement that should move us to repentance. When we are surrounded by enemies, we ought to consider first our heart. Oh Lord, where am I in, as I stand before you? Am I in good standing? Hear my humble petition as I cry out in this sadness. This week, all of you know by this time I'm sure, Friday this week, seven coordinated terrorist attacks took place in Paris as far as the headlines bear it out. So far, last I checked, the body count that these wicked men were able to rack up was 130 or so innocent civilians. Did you also notice what happened as we watched the response of world leaders to this horrible atrocity? World leaders rushed to the microphone. They rushed to the press conference before the blood on the streets was dry. They rushed to condemn with all their military and political might represented behind them the horrific shootings in France. One wonders, as we looked upon that scene in the news this week, was there a single president, was there a single head of state, 
Was there a single magistrate among them who took his grievance to the throne of grace first, asking for divine deliverance and seeking heaven's perspective and vowing to present to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the glory of their conquest as a freewill offering should they be successful in stamping out this ideology. If you could name one, if you could show me that press conference, boy, would I be shocked, pleasantly surprised. It seems to me it would be the first time in my memory in recent days where a public declaration of humility and lament of bringing the petition before heaven first, before defiant firm resolve was evidenced in our world leaders today. Boy, is Psalm 54 a pattern that we need to learn for ourselves. We are so quick to rebuild without repenting. We are so quick to run to the sword without lifting our hands to heaven. We are so quick to take vengeance on our enemies without considering what we may need to repent of. Thus, we have a great problem. There is an absence of lament in the consciousness of our nation and the cultures of this globe. And I submit to you, it goes more personal than this. This problem could be an absence of lament in our own consciousness. Do we cry out to the Lord in our anguish? Or do we resent and get angry at the enemy without going to the throne of grace and bringing our appeal and tears before Him as a sacrifice and offering? The absence of lament could speak to a rebellion against sovereign, the sovereignty of God in affliction. We see this as senseless, purposeless. There is no providence while controlling the effects and the circumstances of the nations around us. No, man is just unleashed to his own devices. God is not in control. We're at the whim and mercy of random acts of senseless violence. No, that is not the case. Lament going to God first before we pick up the sword tells us that we have one who is sovereign over all. And refusing to do so could speak to a rebellion against this sovereignty. And instead, a trust and a faith in the humanistic schemes of man. Secondly, the lack of lament could speak to a faithless outlook on the purpose of suffering. We have no faith, that is to say, that God worketh in us the willing to do of His good pleasure through afflictions. That the things that He causes us to walk through by way of the valley of the shadow of death, are unto glory. And work in us that sanctifying good, uh, end to His glory and purpose of shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Failure to bring our petitions before the Lord in our deep distress may betray a doubtful heart in God's power to save. Why would we turn to Him if we, trust that, if we do not trust that His arm is mighty and not too short to intervene on our behalf? And also it may betray a short-sighted scope of His glory. Can God have purposes in the great tragedies and anguish that we go through in this life? How is He seeking to make these known? We may not know and we may not be able to see it because we are blinded by the weight of our trial. But take that anguish before the Lord. Do it in faith. Oh Lord, I know you have a purpose in this. I am tempted to be impulsive in my reaction. But I quiet my heart before the sovereign throne of grace. I make my appeal before Yahweh Himself and ask that You would give me Your heart in this matter. All of these things are lost with lament, I submit to you. Instead, what do we replace them with? Well, often 
We replace them with a self-centered liturgy, a worshiping impulse that seeks to put ourself over and above God. Notice that the mark of the wicked in verse 3 is they are those who do not set God before themselves. Well, what do they set in front of them? Well, they just reverse it, don't they? They set themselves before God. Lament is a great way to set God before ourselves, to take our concern and cares before Him and to cry out for His deliverance. When we do so, we are effectively declaring that He is sovereign. And it is a prayerful posture akin with David's when he in verse 2 said, O God, hear my prayer, give ears to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. And these words David then is bringing an entreaty. He says in verse 3, The strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Briefly, let us note this word strangers. This is an odd choice of words. Why? Because the Zephites, Ziphites, that we find in the title, were from a town just five miles from Hebron. This was David's home country. They were from Judah. They were from the tribe of Judah. These were David's countrymen. David is saying, though, that a countryman can be a stranger. A countryman can be an enemy. When they betray the Lord ultimately and standing against his purposes and opposing his anointed one. He says, strangers have risen against me. The men of Judah, David's countrymen. Thus, Matthew Henry identifies for us that in this way, in the messianic prefiguring of Psalm 54, they represent a type of Judas. Was it not Jesus' own countryman, Judas, and those who cried out, crucify him, that betrayed the Savior, into the hands of the mob and in the hands of the pagan authorities. It was those of the tribe of Judah, so to speak, that rose up against the anointed one, Jesus Christ. David was God's anointed one. He was commissioned to represent the messianic saving power of God, to reflect it in his life. Yet there were those who would betray him, ruthless men who would turn him over to the authorities. Saul, like the pagan authority represented by Pilate in Rome in the New Testament, was there at this time to readily receive the treasonous betrayal of the Ziphites who had betrayed David's position and then in so doing turn him over to the vices of the wicked one. In essence, as I've already mentioned, the posture of the strangers of David's enemies was exactly opposed to the righteous. They were setting themselves before God in order to get favor with Saul and for the promise of a comfortable life where Saul would perhaps give you some favors or at least not turn his sword against you. You're willing to betray your Messiah, as it were, or the one that is anointed to save, speaking figuratively, of course, in the office of David, into the hands of the wicked one. Just like as we have read in the Gospels, the people cried out, We have no king but Caesar. Away with him. Crucify him. In so doing, for the pottage, for the porridge of favor with Caesar, they were selling their soul to the devil. And they were denying the one who truly was anointed 
to save. So David, in making his entreaty, recognizes all these. He identifies the enemies as the ones who oppose God's sovereign plans. He brings his case before the ultimate court, the imperium, the authority of the sovereign God of the universe. And he does so in a tone of lament. And thus we have the hearing in Psalm 54. Secondly, this morning, let us consider declaration. After David brings his prayer before the Lord, we find the tone of his song shifting to confidence and resolve. Remember, hands to heaven first, and secondly, to the sword of resolve. Verses 4 and 5. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. This is a proclamation of imminent defeat for those who would oppose God's anointed one. But it's almost bipolar, is it not? David has just brought his lament as if he were absolutely desperate. But in a moment, his perspective changes to absolute confidence that God will show his faithfulness in destroying his enemies, returning their evil upon his head. What is the basis for his certainty? Well, he has surrendered his human response to the spiritual reality. And it has been accomplished through prayer. It has been accomplished through worship. When we enter the house of God and lift up our praises in unison with God's people, we may have been distracted, troubled, and burdened by the enemy of our souls during the course of our week. But God has ordained in His great mercy a category of safety, a means of grace for us in the fellowship of God's people to offer our praise to Him so that as we sing our songs of petition and repentance and praise, we begin to see flood in and feel flood into our own souls the confident resolve that the Lord will turn the evil of the wicked one upon His head. And the Midianites that surround our camp will begin to take up arms against themselves. Think about those victorious battle campaigns that God, with the touch of His sovereign hand, worked in favor and to the advantage of His people. It didn't matter that the enemy had a vastly superior war machine if those implements of battle were turned on themselves. In fact, the technology of their chariots and the great firepower of their weaponry only served as a greater tool to their own destruction when they turned on each other as God totally routed them and brought them to confusion and removed their reasoning so that they destroyed themselves. This is how our God works. We look at the powers that be around us today and man is gripped in his godlessness by absolute paralyzing fear. We'll dig a hole in the ground. We'll seek to have a missile defense system impermeable to the occasional ICBM that no doubt some deranged despot will send our way as soon as they get enough enriched uranium to make into a bomb to decimate the major population centers of this country. You cannot build a bunker deep enough. And there is no missile system that ultimately will protect you from the enemy without. No, the only true protection is the God who controls the minds and hearts and circumstances, who lets kings rise and brings them to a crashing fall, who steers their heart in his palm as if it were a stream of water. 
And think about the confidence that you can have. Though the enemies rise up with nuclear forces on every side, we can have confidence that if God so chooses, He could turn those weapons against the enemies of His people and destroy them in five minutes, vaporized. This is the power of God. David recognizes it, and he affirms it in his declaration. He signals this in verse 4 with the term, Behold, in the Hebrew, Hinway. Pay attention. Uh, let me call your attention to a solemn and important declaration. It's as if he's cupping his hands around his mouth. He's grabbing the megaphone of truth, and he's declaring to the powers that be, and even the wicked one with all his military might, and the majority that has set their face against David to stamp him out as his ragtag fugitive because Saul has turned his military might against him. David is crying out from the mountain to all of them, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. A single man standing on a prominent place is kind of the picture in my mind here. And here in the valley are enemies assembled. It's the similar attitude that David displayed when he came up against Goliath. You come at me with a sword and a shield, but I come at you with the name of Yahweh, my deliverer. There is no uncircumcised giant that can stand in the, in the way of God's covenant purposes through his anointed one and his people. I serve you notice this day that God is my helper and the Lord is the upholder of my life. Thus, one boy armed with this knowledge, can defeat a Philistine horde. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. And so it happened time and again in the course of David's life. Now you would think with a track record of David's great triumphs and victory that he would be so battle-hardened with assurance that he would walk with an absolute swagger and flex his muscles of success so that nothing could faze him anymore, but such was not the case. David knew in the presence of his enemies that he needed to make his appeal before the Lord. Don't let past track records of success jade you to your dependence on God Almighty. He is the one that fights on our behalf. We do not fight for ourselves. David understood this, and he makes it known in this declaration. He makes a declaration of God's orientation toward his own, God's attitude towards those that he has promised and vowed for safekeeping, salvation, and protection. He says, verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. That term helper is like succor. It's the uh, coming alongside in time of anguish with relief. You think of Elijah when he was exiled in the wilderness for a time and he was seeking refuge from the famine that he prophesied would come. And God was his helper. On the wings of ravens was his bread and meat delivered. The cattle on the thousand hills, the beasts of the forest, the birds of the field are mine. God has told us in prior verses and he has shown us in the testimony of his prophets. Thus we can live in a land under judgment and God can be our helper and the upholder of our life. And Luke 23, 46 which is a reference, a citation, and a fulfillment of Psalm 31, verse 5. Even at the point of death's door itself, suffering for the sins of His people, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, He was the Son of David. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
Same heart, same declaration, same attitude. God is my helper. No man takes my life. He is the upholder of my life. And if I'm called to lay it down now, it is for a sovereign purpose. And just like Abraham confessed before he almost sacrificed his son, he had faith that God would raise him up again. And so God did. But he did so by slaying his son first. But his son didn't stay in the grave. God raised him up again as well. The God of resurrection, who provides a, sab- a substitute and a satisfaction for Abraham so he doesn't have to uh, burn his son. The God of resurrection, who crucified instead his own son, Jesus Christ, become man and dwelling among us, and then raised him from the dead. Is there any reason, is there any room to doubt that he will not uphold our life? That he will not be our helper? No matter the difficulty we are in, we can confess with Christ, with David, and with the psalmist of every generation, into your hands I commit my spirit, knowing full well that in his due course, even if we have to wait till the final judgment day, verse 5, he will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness. David cries, he pronounces, he declares, put an end to them. In this phrase, David has not only identified God's attitude toward his own as helper, upholder, the one in whom we can trust, the one who saves his prophets and rescues a remnant, but he also identifies God's attitude towards, God's disposition towards the enemies of his own, the enemies of his people, the kind of anti-Psalm 15 types. In Psalm 15, we have a picture of those who are in right standing with the Lord. It says, O Lord... Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? So this is a picture of who, who can be safe on that hill of protection and who can be satisfied in good standing and fellowship with him, with God in his tent. Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks truth in his heart, does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now in polar opposite form to Psalm 15, we have the Ziphites who were not willing to swear to their own hurt and not change. They did not want to share in the sufferings of David but instead betrayed their friend, their countrymen, their brother into the hands of Saul. At least they attempted it, indeed, twice. So in this case, in this grievous infraction of God's commandments, David talks about what will happen. In God's God's quest to preserve his faithfulness, he must necessarily destroy those who are the anti-Psalm 15. He will destroy the enemies who set their face in self-preservation against the Lord. He will destroy, to remain faithful to His covenant and His word, those who set themselves before God. Again, the reverse of verse 3. These are chilling words, in fact, if we find ourselves in this situation. And this word, this declaration, is one that is fitting for a call to repentance to the ungodly. Because there is not a man born, there is not a human being alive ever who has not put himself before God. That is the nature and state 
of our soul before we are redeemed and ransomed by the blood of Christ alone. God, in remaining faithful to His covenant and His commitment to His own glory, must destroy those who place themselves before God. But He will save those who place God before themselves. And that is the declaration. That's the defense strategy, even in betrayal. Thirdly and finally this morning, vow and victory. Worship and the substance of worship is expounded in verses 6 and 7. Upon this knowledge and with a reorientation of truth, David says the following, makes a vow and declares victory. Verses 6 and 7. With the free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. The substance of worship is always in line and cannot be separated with sacrifice. There are themes in the different laments in Scripture all through the Psalms. There is a vow and sacrifice often that is the, uh, the, the, the goal or the end of the lament. There is a bringing of the grievances before the Lord, but there's an expectation of His intervention, and then there's a vow or there's a commitment to worship Him upon His answer to the prayer. This is the sacrifice offered in response to the petition. In Leviticus 22:21, turn there just briefly with me. There's a reference to free will offerings. The Bible is amazingly powerful as we connect the dots of revelation and we move through the testimony of atonement pictured even in the old covenant sacrifices because and especially when we see them fulfilled in Christ. In Leviticus 22, there's this uh, provision made in the law for free will offerings. But not just any animal will do. 22:21. Here we have some instructions. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace, offerings to the Lord, to fulfill a vow, or as a freewill offering from the Lord, the herd or from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Again, and anyone who offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. David has made a commitment to present an extremely expensive sacrifice. Now, it represents something. It represents what God deserves in light of what He does not. Perfect sacrifice. A worship that is pure and undefiled. And as we turn over, we begin to see the messianic truth of this psalm coming to light as we connect the dots again of Revelation. Again, we see this theme of free will offering picked up in the book of Hebrews, which is one of our favorite texts of late, is it not, as we've seen the Old Testament come alive in its fulfillment and the declaration of the same in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 9, I believe it is, verse 14, we have the fulfillment of Leviticus 22 and the prefiguring 
of what David promises in Psalm 54. Notice what we have. It says, how much more, Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice, the context is salvation. Blood of a sacrifice is shed. And it is the blood of the perfect sacrifice without blemish. And it is a free will offering. It says Christ offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here is the basis of our salvation. Just as David promised that he would respond with the sacrifice, so God himself has offered himself as a sacrifice, a free will offering, and in that is the substance and essence of our salvation. Sacrifice and worship always have gone and always will go together. In as we continue to connect the dots in Scripture related to this, I'll remind you of Romans 12, verse 1. There's a, a shift in the context of Paul's gospel laid out so carefully in 11 chapters. He says, Therefore, or in light of this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. So worship in substance, as we th- see it throughout Scripture, is that, first of all, an offering, a sacrifice, must be perfect. Secondly, we see in Jesus Christ that that was fulfilled, what was prefigured in Psalm 54. And then we see in our own lives, or in Romans 12, we have commandment to acknowledge that in our obedience. We acknowledge the perfect sacrifice of Christ, freely offered without blemish for our salvation, when we in turn offer ourselves as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. And in so doing, in response to His satisfaction paid for our sin, we lift up a freewill offering, if you will, of sacrifice, of praise to Him. This week, someone brought to my attention, I got a text message that said, asked the question, was God displeased with all sacrifices in the Old Testament? And immediately in my mind, I thought, oh great, what sermon were you listening to on Sunday? And sure enough, a wolf in sheep's clothing got up before the gullible sheep and declared that Jesus Christ in this church, in this instance, declared that Jesus Christ, was, his death was not really a sacrifice. No, no, it was just uh, him uh, uh, reaching down in love. Uh, and, and God is not a bloodthirsty father who needs to take his meds to satisfy his bloodthirst before we approach him. And as this message was preached, and all its poisonous heresy, the preacher was undermining and stripping, in his words, the very foundation of our redemption and the very substance of worship. If you take the theme of sacrifice out of Scripture, you have no Scripture left. If you do not understand what Christ fulfilled and what God demanded in His justice, there is no gospel. The gospel is throughout all of Scripture And from the Old Testament all the way through to the New, we see this theme of the substance of worship and satisfaction in the satisfactory sacrifice. The essence of true worship is always rooted in sacrifice. 
Christ is our sacrifice, and He has been offered on our behalf. We are set free to be a living sacrifice to Him because of what He has accomplished. David continues with his vow and victory statement with a message of faith, and we see this in the tenses that he uses in verse 6. The free will offering I will sacrifice to you, I will give thanks to your name. Then verse 7, for he has delivered me from every trouble. How long would it take David to write this song? Did he sing it the first time that he was betrayed by the Ziphites? Did he sing it again the second? And would it have been relevant in each case? I suspect he did. And yes, it would have been relevant in each case. Because the confidence that we can have in God's promises is one that can put its certainty in the category, that can put our certainty in the category of past tense. If God has promised something, it is already in one sense accomplished. I will give thanks because you have delivered me. We won't go there with specificity this morning, but if you go to 1 Samuel 23 and 1 Samuel 26, you see the two occasions where David was betrayed by his countrymen, the Ziphites. And in these trials, he triumphed in each case. And he did so through God's means that were surprising, sovereign, and powerful. In the first case, Saul was chasing him. David was hiding. But Saul heard from a messenger that the Philistines were threatening a particular border. So he turned all his forces away from David to a different priority. And in this way, God provided a diversion for Saul and David was rescued. And he triumphed over his enemy when God created a diversion and steered Saul away from his anointed one, from God's anointed one. In the second instance, 1 Samuel 26, there's a demonstration of grace. David himself and one of his faithful servants sneak down to the camp in the night and they take the spear and the water jug of Saul. They retreat a little ways to a knoll and then they cry out in the morning. And I imagine that cry, something like 54, in the tone of 54, 4 and 5. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies and your faithfulness put an end to them. This must have been what Saul felt when David says, Look, O king, I have your spear. I have your water jug. And the conclusion is obvious. Why didn't David just kill him? After all, Saul had been uh, chasing him down this entire time. This was David's opportunity. Why not? Because David lifted his hands to heaven first before he dropped them to his sword. And he did not have clearance at this point to touch God's anointed so in a demonstration of grace, instead of a demonstration of vengeance, Saul was routed. He spun around, did a 180, even repented, though superficially. He said, you're a better man than me. And in shame, Saul went away. Thus David was delivered twice, and he triumphed over the betrayal of the Ziphites in the most unusual, providential, and amazing ways, by a diversion and by a demonstration of grace. In these ways, God can cause deliverance to visit His people in a moment. may not be exactly what we asked for, maybe on a different time schedule, but He is powerful to save, and He will. In closing this morning, think of the themes of our messages of late and how they tie in with Psalm 54. Let us consider this text of lament 
and faith in light of our recent sermon uh, uh, themes from Hebrews, for instance. Remember, hope, faith, promise, vow in Hebrews chapter 6. We have as a steadfast anchor for our soul, the picture there is in spite of the wind-tossed seas, we have an assurance of Jesus Christ who went forward carrying our anchor line into the presence chamber, the inner place, as our forerunner and high priest. And so like David, and even with more assurance, manifestly revealed in God's redemptive plan, we can say that He has delivered us from our troubles, and our eye has looked in triumph on our enemies. Think of the themes that we heard last week when Dr. Schultz brought us a message from Hebrews 11. There are saints of triumph, of suffering, and of patience. Certainly David modeled all three, and as you notice the examples throughout Scripture, many of God's chosen ones who were given the gift of faith showed that they had that faith in all three categories. Yes, in their triumphs when God saved them, but also in the sufferings that they endured, and, in, and through it all, patience until the end, looking forward to a promise that ultimately would not be received independently from us and ultimately would be fully manifest in glory when their souls are caught up into the perfect presence of God forever after death. So here in Psalm 54, it's an example for us. And David is writing as an example and also as a type of Christ. He has penned for us an anthem, an anthem for the believer, celebrating the shape of redemption itself, suffering unto glory. Jesus suffered unto glory. And we can bear with the fellowship of His sufferings, knowing that we will ultimately triumph so long as we are in Him. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank You for the powerful faith-building messages of Scripture that saturate our soul with life-giving truth, that strengthen the weary hands that hang down, that lift up and fit the shield of faith for our grasp and hone the sword of the Spirit for effective warfare. And remind us that in You and You alone is our refuge and fortress. And call us, beckon us, to bring our laments and our prayers before the Lord, because He and He alone is mighty to save and intervene on our behalf. I pray that we would hear the message of salvation in Psalm 54, and like David, that we would make our requests known before you, and that we would trust the covenant-keeping glory and power of Yahweh, our God, to fight for us and ultimately to bring us into His safekeeping until that day, may we be found faithful, seeking your face, O God, and drawing on the means that you supply to walk in a manner worthy of our call. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. This morning, just a couple of announcements for you before you leave.